Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we finish our reading of the tale Old Sultan and discuss the importance of limits in the discovery and expression of our true selves. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. In an era which has concentrated exclusively upon extension of living space and increase of rational knowledge at all costs, it is a supreme challenge to ask man to become conscious of his uniqueness and his limitation. Uniqueness and limitation are synonymous. In the first part of this two-part series, looking at the Grimm's fairy tale, Old Sultan, I focused on the importance of establishing a right relationship with that age-old truth expressed by all the great religious traditions, that everything changes. And in this second part, I'm going to continue with the last half of the tale, and here I want to spend some time thinking about the value of limits. Uniqueness and limitation, Jung states in our opening quote, are synonymous. Now this is a statement that is decidedly in opposition to our current zeitgeist, right? We live in an era, as Jung says, which is concentrated exclusively upon extension of living space and increase of rational knowledge at all costs. And how much more so is this extension and increase at all costs the case, now that we have, through the power of the internet, anything we could desire literally at our fingertips at any moment of the day or night. No more are there any natural checks on our appetites and cravings. We are ceaselessly trained to be consumers, and we comply with this training through an endless seeking for novelty and new experiences. To use the language of our fairy tale, which we'll turn to in a moment, there are no constraints on our ravenous, wolfish nature. We fear boredom and abhor stillness. 
but we have forgotten that limitations such as these are, in truth, the soil of creativity. Uniqueness and limitation are synonymous. In other words, without the experience of limits, we cannot become our most authentic selves. Offspring, as we are, of a culture of acquisition, we have come to equate fulfillment with more. More possessions, more pleasure, more productivity. However, says Jung, if we are to faithfully express our deepest selves, the opposite is true. We need to learn the value of less. This is eloquently conveyed by the great religious writer Evelyn Underhill. The complete expression of everything of which we are capable, she writes, the whole psychological zoo living within us, as well as the embryonic beginnings of artist, statesman, or saint, means chaos, not character. We must select in order to achieve, can only develop some faculties at the expense of others. And with that image of the psychological zoo, we have a great segue to our tale, the second half of which deals primarily with the interactions between several animals. We paused our reading of the story after the old and toothless dog, Sultan, had successfully conspired with the wolf to show his value to the farmer by staging a rescue of the farmer's baby. Sultan was being given the royal treatment by the farmer, even getting to sleep on his master's pillow. All seemed happily resolved. But now the wolf returns. So here is the next part of the story. Soon afterwards, the wolf visited him and was pleased that everything had succeeded so well. But, kinsman, he said, you will just close one eye if, when I have a chance, I carry off one of your master's fat sheep. Don't count on that, answered the dog. I will remain true to my master. I cannot agree to that. The wolf thought that this was not spoken in earnest, and he crept up in the night to take away the sheep. But the farmer, to whom the faithful sultan had told the wolf's plan, was waiting for him and combed his hair cruelly with a flail. The wolf had to flee, but he cried out to the dog, Just wait, you scoundrel. You'll regret this. The motif of the old dog 
who shows his loyalty to his master, despite his advancing years and seeming loss of strength, appears often in the folklore and stories of different cultures. And it's this loyalty that's on display in this section of the story. When asked to look the other way by the wolf, if he should come to steal a sheep from the farmer, the dog replies, don't count on that. I will remain true to my master. Now, last time I suggested that the so-called toothless instinct is one that is directed to the inner life. Our active life energy turns from being directed primarily towards external achievement to being channeled into the cultivation of our spiritual and psychological potentials. This is what Jung calls individuation, or alternately, the development of the personality. Now, by development of the personality, Jung's not speaking of the kind of activity that we tend to call self-improvement, personal growth, or personal development today. All of those categories tend to have more of the productivity mindset than they do a creativity mindset. It's really just the wolf in the old dog's clothing, so to speak. The chief quality that's needed for this development of one's personality, according to Jung, is what he calls fidelity to the law of one's own being. And this idea of fidelity he compares to the Greek New Testament word pistis. Pistis is generally translated as faith, but Jung suggests that it might be better translated as trustful loyalty. And he goes on to say that fidelity to the law of one's own being is a trust in this law, a loyal perseverance and confident hope. In short, an attitude such as a religious man should have towards God. The law of one's own being, then, if we take Jung seriously here, is a sacred one. And it requires an unshakable loyalty from us, a loyal perseverance if it's to be realized in our lives. And this is the kind of loyalty shown by old Sultan to the farmer. And ultimately, loyalty means limits. Uniqueness and limitation are synonymous. We must select in order to achieve. And here we come to a consideration of asceticism, the practice of limitation, which I touched on in episode 29, The Art of Reflection. Ascetic practices, I said in that episode, should be understood as the discipline of separating oneself 
from the jumble and chaos of internal and external events for the purpose of achieving personal freedom and for the development of one's deepest potentials. It's essentially a practice of taming one's appetites in order to become more sensitive to another level of awareness and attention, that of psychological and spiritual reality, a meaning above and beyond our usual focus on getting and spending. Becoming conscious, wrote Jung in one of his letters, means continual renunciation because it is an ever-deepening concentration. In the story, the farmer, warned by old Sultan, which, by the way, just as an aside here, if the farmer is able to understand his dog, that means that the transformation that we looked at last time has enabled him to begin to hear the language of animals, which was a central theme in that last complete fairy tale that we looked at, the white snake. Anyway, he's warned by old Sultan so that he can confront the wolf when it comes to devour his sheep, and he beats it and forces it to flee. This is an image of the ascetic discipline. Our instincts color the way we see and experience the world. And that experience always comes through a lens. And a wolfish lens, for instance, as reflected in this story as well as many others, sees in terms of its own self-interest, looks for things that it can devour. And this way of seeing blocks the vision of other levels of experience, other states of consciousness more attuned to the inner life, the symbolic life. At times it's necessary, the story says, to defend against this impulse and even aggressively drive it out in order for something new and different to be able to take root. This is a typical stage in many contemplative practices and is known in the Christian mystical tradition as the purgative way. We're not yet done with the wolf, however. There is one more act in our story to go. So here it is. The next morning, the wolf sent the boar to challenge the dog to come out into the forest and settle the affair. Old Sultan could find no one to be his second but a cat with only three legs. And as they went out together, the poor cat limped along, stretching its tail upward with pain. The wolf and his friend were ready at the appointed place, but when they saw their enemy coming, they thought that he was bringing a saber with him, for they mistook the cat's outstretched tail for one. 
And when the poor animal hopped on three legs, they thought that each time it was picking up a stone to throw at them. Then they took fright. The wild boar crept into the underbrush and the wolf jumped up a tree. As the dog and the cat approached, they wondered why no one was to be seen. The wild boar, however, had not been able to hide himself completely in the leaves. His ears were still sticking out. While the cat was looking cautiously about, the boar wiggled his ears and the cat, who thought it was a mouse, jumped on it and bit down hard. The boar jumped up, screamed loudly, The guilty one is up in the tree! The dog and cat looked up and saw the wolf, who was ashamed for having shown such fear, and who then made peace with the dog. So, this last part of the story is all about the animals. The relationship between the farmer and the dog is solidly established, and the farmer essentially fades into the background. Now what remains is for the animals to sort things out amongst themselves. And when it comes down to it, change does not simply happen at the level of consciousness, here represented by the farmer or at a merely behavioral level. Ultimately, real change happens when it has taken root in the unconscious, when one instinct supersedes, so to speak, another. And so we get this sequence in the story in which the wolf challenges the dog to a duel, bringing as his second the boar. In other words, things get even more aggressive and hostile on this end. And the dog, on the other hand, gets a three-legged cat to be his second. Another small, disfigured, or deformed animal. Hardly, we might imagine, a fair fight. Now, to be honest, we could spend a whole episode or more on each of the different animals here. But what I want to do is to limit our focus for now to looking at the cat, as it seems clear that the cat is in some way the decisive factor for this last part of the story. It's the cat's tail that the other animals mistake for a saber, and the cat's limp that they mistake for the gathering of stones. And it's the cat's biting of the boar's ear that ends up revealing the wolf's hiding place, which in turn leads to the reconciliation between the wolf and the dog. Independence. According to the Jungian analyst Barbara Hanna in her book, The Archetypal Symbolism of Animals is one of the main characteristics 
of the cat. And it's this quality I want to suggest that's at work here. Now, the duel in the story, of course, is between the wild animals and the domestic animals. In other words, it's between the automatic and unconscious instinctual realm and those instincts that have been brought more into relationship with consciousness. And the work of bringing consciousness to our animal nature is an idea that is common to many spiritual traditions. And thus, we could say, it forms a core part of the religious function of the psyche. As Abraham Joshua Heschel writes, distant ends, religious, moral, and artistic interests may become as relevant to us as our concern for food. One aspect of the religious function of the psyche, then, is the development of an instinct for those interests and those experiences that are beyond simply our appetites and our narrow self-interest. We're also called to meaning and purpose. And this is where the factor of independence comes in. The instinct for meaning and purpose makes us independent of the world, especially in its fascination for things like youth and material success and social status. And this independence can too often be treated by the world in return as a deformity. To develop one's personality, writes Jung, is indeed an unpopular undertaking, a deviation that is highly uncongenial to the herd. The dog and the cat together, we could say, represent both fierce loyalty and fierce independence, with each supporting and strengthening the other in the work of consciousness and creativity. So what's our takeaway as we come to the end of this story? Well, in the end, there is no fight. The wild animals simply give up. Apparently, there is something about the power of the toothless dog and the three-legged cat that is too much for that of the wolf and the boar. But we know that it's not as easy as all that, right? We know that our appetites and our self-interests can be formidable opponents, in our own lives, we do not feel that the victory of those higher instincts, religious, moral, artistic, that Heschel speaks about, is a sure thing. We're often uncertain about the value of the inner life and the development of the personality, of individuation. Quite frankly, inner work is hard work. And independence can be painful. It takes courage 
to be what one is, to go against the current in order to become what one could be. Courage and fidelity to the law of one's own being. But it's only through this full expression of our being that we're truly free. And freedom, as we've seen, paradoxically requires limits. Uniqueness and limitation are synonymous. The writer Stephen Pressfield puts it this way, the truly free individual is free only to the extent of their own self-mastery. And for this work, we need to call upon loyalty, and independence, and discipline. All your power, all your resolution, writes Evelyn Underhill, is needed if you are to succeed in this adventure. There must be no frittering of energy, no mixture of motives. And again, for Underhill, the goal of this effort is freedom. If we're able to give ourselves to this task, she says, we create the conditions in which our whole will, love, and attention may pour itself out towards, seize upon, unite with that special manifestation of the beauty and significance of the universe to which we are drawn. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care of